Well, the young girl stood frightened to the bone. The only thing greater than her fright was her physical thirst. But there standing between her and the cool stream was the largest lion that she had ever seen. If you are thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words she had heard since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. And for a second she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. And of course she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in that other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time and the voice was not a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger. A sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, uh, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. And so reads C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair. I think that it nails a frustrating tension, y'all, that all of us have at some point in our life. The things that we most long for we can't seem to get. The things that we most want, we can't seem to get at or have in us, as it were. There were two options for her. Approach the lion and risk death or remain where she was and experience the death that comes from thirst. And tonight, John here tells us of a woman who was thirsty. She had come to a well, but she had a thirst of a deeper kind as well. Despite what was on the surface, she knew, I think, like, like many of us know, that the deep, this deep sense of unrest that came from running to all the wrong places with our greatest desires. But she didn't know it at first. It was only when Jesus, as we read, went to her and began to gently confront when he gently confronted her about all the things that she thought would satisfy. Well, you may remember a few weeks ago, we saw this encounter with Jesus entering into conversation with the religious leader named Nicodemus. He was a religious ruler. He was a religious PhD, we saw. But tonight, we see once again Jesus entering into another conversation, not with a religious insider, as it were, but tonight with the opposite, with an outsider. And in this text, we're going to see, y'all, the wide, merciful heart of God on display as we see tonight specifically how Jesus goes out and seeks and saves outsiders. We're told, as you saw, as you see it there, that the, wor- the Father is seeking worshipers. You saw it right there when you see this when He says, <clears throat> you worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For, here it is, the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father is out seeking those who would find their rest, find their delight in Him. And in this text, y'all, 
we get an inside glimpse of how that actually happens. So, what does Jesus do to demonstrate the seeking heart of our God to outsiders? We see three things, as always. There's always only three points. I'm just playing. But we see this. First, we see that Jesus actually goes to. We see that He also confronts. And thirdly, we see that He satisfies the outsider. We see that He goes to the outsider, that He confronts the outsider, and that He satisfies the outsider. And y'all, here's my hope for y'all tonight. That you would see the wide open, merciful heart of God for you in Christ tonight. Even tonight, maybe for the first time. That's what I hope you see. That's my one goal, is that you would see that tonight. So, let's take a look at what is happening between Jesus and this very famous yet unmentioned woman at the well, as we see that Jesus first goes to the outsider. Did you see it here? Jesus is traveling here in verses 5 through 9. He's traveling from Samaria to Galilee, and in between that area was a land, uh, sorry, he was traveling from Judea to Galilee, and there was a land between those two regions called Samaria. And as he's passing through, he stops around high noon to get a drink at a well. Well, there's a woman at this well as well, that's a lot of wells. And uh, we first need to be able to examine who in the world is this woman and why is it significant, significant that Jesus is talking to her. Well, for starters, she's a Samaritan. This may not be shocking to you that Jesus is talking to her, but that's because you don't know about Samaritans like Jesus and His culture would have known. The Jews hated Samaritans. Think deep racism here, y'all. Think a, a, a specific hatred to this sort of people because... The Jews view the Samaritans as half-breeds. Why? Well, because many, many hundreds of years prior to this time when Jesus was living, there, this nation called Assyria came in to the land of Samaria and began to interbreed, intermingle with the Jewish people. And their offspring were literally part Jewish and part Gentile. And so because of that, the pure Jews viewed these Samaritans as half-breeds. But secondly, she's not only a Samaritan, she's a she. She's a woman. And why, is that would be, why would that be so significant? Well, because men in that day would not have spoken to women like this. It would have been too scandalous of a deal for a man to speak to a woman in public one-on-one -on -one like this. Utterly scandalous for a man to do that. And lastly, this woman had a past well, we'll see later all about her past, but for now I want you to see that Jesus, by talking with this woman, by going to this well, <clears throat> is crossing literally all sorts of boundaries. He's breaking all sorts of social conventions, crossing barriers like racial barriers and gender barriers and cultural and moral barriers. In other words, He goes out. He goes out to meet this woman to extend grace to her. Y'all, here's the point. God in Christ has chosen a way of connecting with sinners. He goes out. He does not wait for them to come to Him. Otherwise, guess what? They'd never come. They'd never come. He risks social status. He puts cool on the line, as it were, for the sake of bringing real grace to someone who otherwise wouldn't get it. The point is simple, really. Jesus always, 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 and only goes out to sinners. And this is done because of the great love that He has for them. 
Many years ago when I was in high school, <clears throat> before some of y'all were born, there was um, a story that hit the news. In 1994, a prisoner was literally beaten to death, killed in prison because of the crimes that he had committed that had gotten him into prison. He was the serial uh, murderer by a man named Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer had 17 murders to his name that he confessed to all. Uh, 16 of those he had memories of, of literally dismembering. Some of them were children. He was a pedophile. It was a, he was a hor- horrific killer. But do you know what happened prior to his death? That there in prison, God's grace met him, and Jeffrey Dahmer was converted. And I think that me even saying that makes me go, well, wait, wait, a, well, wait a second here, hold on. That just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right that a man can live a life like that and then God's grace can save him and it would make him clean. I mean, it doesn't seem fair. And then we have to step back in a second and say, well, what else does grace do? You see, that's exactly the sort of people that it goes to. It always goes out to that sort of folk. And here's the deal. If you're a Christian, you're going to be spending eternity rejoicing in the grace of God with Jeffrey Dahmer forever. Now, why do I share that story with you? Partly to show you the scandalousness, how scandalous grace really is, but also to show you the type of person that it goes to. And if it goes out to the likes of this woman, and if Jesus goes out to the likes of a Jeffrey Dahmer, I want you to hear this very simple point. You are not beyond the reach of God's grace. You are not. None of your friends are. I don't care what your story is. I don't care what substances you've abused. I don't care how bad of a jerk you are to your roommates. I don't care how deep your gossiping problem is. I don't care how many people you've slept with and you can't get over the guilt of that. Jesus' grace comes to you freely. It goes out to the uttermost and it rescues. That's the promise here. That Jesus goes out to the outsider and brings them in. Dahmer was the outcast. But do you know what the Apostle Paul writes? Listen to what Jesus says. He says that though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That literally means a thing to be held on to. And so, what did he do? He made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant to come serve you and me. He does this. And when He does it, we are enabled to be able to do the same. I think at this point it would be really tempting to kind of say, okay, now you see what Jesus has done. Now you go do the same. And there's a sense where that is right. But I want you to know that John did not write his gospel as a method for evangelism. This is not a manual for how to go out and love the lost. It's rather written principally for the idea of saying, I want you to believe in Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't talk and derive and talk about things about the way that Jesus goes out and how that models for us about the way that we should. But before I say that, I must say it it is primarily a book about what God has done for us. But having said that, I just simply want you to see that Jesus goes to an average place, has an average conversation, is smack dab around the likes of sinners. And he's able to talk about grace with them. 
Do you see that you're able to do that too all over this campus? That there are a thousand women at the well here on this campus. They're in your classes. They're in your fraternity houses. They're in your sorority dorms. They're where, I mean, they're everywhere. And the idea is, is that God wants us to see the way that Jesus has come to us and have that motivate and drive the way that we reach out to people in our lives as well. Jesus goes to the outsider. But secondly, not only does Jesus go, He also speaks to this woman. And, he does, and as He does so, I think that this is quite jarring what He does. Our modern sensibilities may not like this, but this is what He does. He actually confronts the outsider too. I'll put it shortly. I'll break it up and say this, that Jesus is tough on sin, but He's tender with the sinner. Tough on sin, but tender with the sinner. What do I mean that he's tough on sin? Well, look at with me at verses 16. Do you see that there? This woman has literally just said, I want to know about having my greatest longing satisfied. I long for this water. And Jesus goes to the heart and responds, not like, well, great, you can have all you want of it. Instead, he says, great, go call your husband. What? It's like a record scratch. What? I mean, she's saying, I want, I want my longing satisfied. And he says, great, let's talk about your sex life. You see, what is going on here? This woman, very frankly, she has a sordid past. And she is presently sleeping with a man who is another woman's husband. And did you find it strange that she asked for deep satisfaction? Jesus says, let's talk about sex. And why would Jesus do this? Because, and here it is, it is because her broken relationships with men are giving her her deepest satisfaction in life. Not so much that they are broken, but she keeps running to man after man after man to have her deepest longing satisfied. And Jesus knows something that she doesn't, that the embrace of men will never quench the deep thirst that she has. So Jesus gently confronts her in her sin. He names it. Did you see that? He names it, but He doesn't cower. He says, you're right to say this. Her desires have run amok, and Jesus lovingly confronts her disordered loves. And yet, and yet, even though He's tough on sin, He never shames her. And here we see that Jesus is tender with the sinner. He never shames or degrades her personhood. Remember, He's already affirmed her by going out to her, by wanting to have this conversation with this woman with a sordid past. He's sitting with her. He's breaking all sort of cultural barriers to dignify this woman. And so what I just want you to see is that Jesus is tough on sin and yet tender with the sinner. And I, I actually think this, I was speaking with a student about this the other day, I think that when we see this, if we were to apply this to a modern day person, most people would say, that Jesus, he sure is a bigot. Because he's telling somebody that something was wrong. And I think that most people, I just want you to know this, that most people sort of view Christianity as, if you say that something is wrong, or have convictions about what is right or wrong, that you are now therefore seen as being judgmental. And I want you to just see here how Jesus has convictions about what is right and about what is wrong, and yet He Himself can be incredibly tender with people. Does that make sense? I'm trying to show you something of the way that He deals with people 
with tenderness and gentleness. Jesus knows that this woman's heart must be lovingly confronted. If she is ever going to know the real joy, the real happiness that she thinks she will find in the arms of these lesser lovers. She was looking to men as the source of her ultimate meaning in life. And Jesus, as a demonstration of His great kindness, not His punishment, confronts her on what she desires more than Him. Um, the words of the writer who's now deceased, David Foster Wallace, really pound this home. Have any of y'all ever heard of him? Okay, he's an author. Uh, he's passed away. If you were a literary buff, you might know him. He's not a Christian. But he wrote this as he was, <clears throat> he actually spoke this at a Kenyan College uh, commencement address many years ago. I think it was in 2005 before he took his life. He was not a religious person, yet he says this. Listen, he says that all of us, not just religious people, worship. That's really weird. Why? Why would he say that? Because he doesn't mean that all of us go to church, you know, and like do the churchy thing. He's, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying all of us make something ultimate and significant in our life. And that's actually what the Bible is talking about when it talks about worship. So listen to what Wallace says in his speech. I've got it up here on the screen and maybe you can read along with me. He says this, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where... Uh, you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before, you finally, before they finally grieve you. David Foster Walls. Wow. What's he saying? He's saying that all of us look to something, y'all, to give our lives value and meaning. And this voice from our culture is telling us you can't live otherwise. Therefore, when Jesus comes to us, y'all, He will always go to the level of our heart's greatest longings and say, Dear one, dear one, this must go. This must go. I am better. Come, look at me. You see, in short, what all of these lesser loves, these idols as the Bible will talk about them, they're like fool's gold, right? They look like gold. They, they feel like gold. But they're not gold at their essence. They're cheap imitations. And all of the things that we long for and run to these other things, whether it's a lover's embrace, whether it's the status of a nice job, if it's best grades, all of those things, they can at best provide counterfeits for which Jesus is the real deal, y'all. That's what He's trying to say to this woman. Quit looking to the love of another man and look to Me. I am the one. I am the one that can truly satisfy you. You see, that's where we're going. So I just want to ask you this. Are you tonight, are you restless? Are you fatigued? I mean, for all the searching and for no end... Perhaps St. Augustine was right when he penned these words, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O God. God always confronts us to give us something better. Where, perhaps, are you like this woman tonight? Where is God showing you 
that the thirst creating pain inside of you will not be quenched until you run to Him. Where is that? It is His kindness that confronts us. And that's what we see tonight. Listen, y'all. Jesus is saying, drink from me. Why? Well, let's look there now, lastly, as we come to our third point. Because John shows us, lastly, the joy-inducing news that Jesus satisfies, He satisfies the outsider. Taking a look at these verses 10 through 15. Again, I mentioned we couldn't cover it all, but we're going to look at these verses shortly. You'll notice there that Jesus is talking about water and springs and what's going on there. Well, Jesus uses the image of a spring, this idea of constant, flowing, cool water to say what the life that He brings is like. This living water that He refers to is, He would say, is eternal life. Now, we think of eternal life, we think of what happens after we die. But as we talked about last week, when John uses the idea of eternal life, he's talking about the life that you have now presently. It's a different kind of life than the life that we often think of. And if you are a Christian, you presently participate in that eternal life that you will have, yes, one day when you die. But it's now. And he's saying that that in itself is what the water is pointing to. And why does Jesus draw this comparison between eternal life and this idea of a spring? That's what living water means. Living like as in movement. Does that make sense? Like a spring, that's what he's talking about. And here's why he does it. Because in the same way that only water can satisfy your bodily thirst, only the life that Jesus brings can satisfy the longing, the thirst that we have at the level of our souls. This woman had run to men to slake her thirst, but it was like running to salt water. On the surface, it appears to quench, but with one gulp, it only leaves you worse off thirstier than when you first began. Jesus uses very strong language in John in verse 14 here. Do you see that? He says this. Literally, He means this. But whoever drinks of the water, whoever, whoever drinks of the water that I give, I love this. This, is, this just doesn't get brought out in the translation. It literally says, I will give him and in no way will he be thirsty forever. I love that imagery. It's not for the somebody, for that person to be thirsty ever again. That is an amazing, amazing promise. Jesus is saying, your soul longs for me. It longs to know that God doesn't just put up with you. I mean, how many of us just think that, right? That God kind of has to put up with me because that's what God does. What Jesus is saying is He doesn't merely put up with you. He really, really delights in you. The Scriptures say this, God sings lullabies over you like a parent does its children. And it says this about you, that you are the apple of His eye. That it says this about you, that you are the jewels around His neck, His own private treasury that He adorns Himself with to make Himself beautiful. That's you. That's the way the Scripture speaks about who you are because of the great love that He has for us. And why? Why would He do this so that you would run to Him to have your soul satisfied. He is saying, I am the only one who will truly give you what you most long for. And when you have me, it's quenched. So Jesus is saying that this woman has on offer, if she would but ask, 
living waters, y'all, that never run dry and always satisfy. The outsider, the outsider has this. And one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes, you're getting a lot of him tonight, by the way. He says this about our longings and how, um, and how they point to what is real. A little bit longer quote, but hang with me. You guys are in college, you can read. The Christian says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's a such thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, it does not prove that the universe is a fraud. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my, I love this, for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. What is Lewis saying? Y'all listen. He's saying that each one of us have a memory of a place that we've never been to. That we have a memory and a longing for a love that we just can't seem to get into. And he's saying, that's what we get in Jesus. That's the sort of longing that we have. That's the sort of thing that God comes to us and he says, I'll give you living waters to have your soul quenched from now to eternity. It's unreal. It's unreal. And so I just want to ask you, do you see that this is what you have tonight? And if you began to see that, how would your life look differently? How would you live your day in, day out life differently if you knew that you have presently living waters bubbling up in you, one that will go on to eternity, always satisfying your deepest longings and your deep, different, your your deepest longings and deepest desires. Here's an illustration. I am married. I've been married for over eight years to the best woman in the whole world. She loves me. She has made promises to me that no other woman will ever make to me. She serves me in ways that it, it boggles my mind. She loves me and has been committed to me more than any other person on the planet. And yet, despite all of this, she's still not enough for me. She's not. Because I was made for more than just her. I was made for God. You see, as one pastor put it, we are made of both heaven and earth. And our longings will only be satisfied when we have both. And that's the great promise that we're hearing about tonight is that you would, that you would see that you already have that Jesus is coming to satisfy you. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step closer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. 
It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had ever seen his stern face could do that, and her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing that she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it thirsts your quench. I mean, it quenched her thirst at once. <laughs> Lost the moment there, but you see what I'm saying, right? Y'all, you have, you have to go through Jesus to have your, quench, your thirst quenched. For He is the only one. He is the only one who has come to do so. And while He confronts all of us, turning us from lesser waters, lesser loves, He offers us Himself that we might be satisfied. And how can we know this? Well, here's how. Don't you know that this is not the only time in the book of John where the idea of thirst and water is mentioned? Later on, we see Jesus completing His rescue mission to the outcast, to you and me. And where is He? He's hanging from a cross, body beaten, stripped naked, and He speaks, I thirst. Why? Because for you and me, He's dying. The one who made the waters is now going without them. Jesus knew the great soul longing distance from God so that you and me, so that we might know that we can have our souls utterly satisfied in Him. His thirst meant our delight. Come. Come to the water. Come to the water and drink. Let's pray.